Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Shitty Christians. I'm your host, Zachary Allard. And I'm Michael Tabor. And what do we have to talk about this week, Michael? We've got a few things to get into. The main topic for today is that we're going to be looking a little bit at the history of the Haymarket Massacre, uh, which is the reason that we all celebrate May Day, uh, which if you're not familiar with because you're bad socialists like us, is one of the sort of like most important days in the socialist calendar. You know, not to be confused with the Gregorian calendar. The socialist, the socialist calendar has a, a flip of weekends. It's it's two day work weeks, five day weekends. So that's the way you can tell. Yeah, I, it was something that I was sort of vaguely aware of, but had never really investigated. And as we have just passed May Day uh, on May first in this country, and also as we are looking at the continuing sort of persecution of labor in this country i thought it would be Mm. good to really sort of do our first shitty christians history lesson it was evocative reading i'll say that yeah i have to say i'm kind of mad at michael like i i promised you dear listeners i would never learn anything in this podcast and i'm I'm breaking that promise to you today don't worry you still won't And we're going to also be looking at one article uh, by a gentleman that Zach found who was talking a little bit about how how are we going to save all the churches in this inevitable economic downturn that we're all going to be living through. And he had an innovative solution that I think we're going to find really compelling. You know, it's just it's exciting to see fresh minds, you know, take on uh, the challenges of our time. Yeah. Who said theology is dead? Only everyone. Uh, <laughs> but first... Michael, there's news to celebrate. Yeah, there, there, is, there is a reason to be excited today. Congratulations to be issued. <laughs> New life in this time of difficulty. Flowers. Yep, like a weed in the sidewalk. Elon Musk had a baby. <laughs> uh, I think it is his sixth child. Yes, at least that we know of. Uh, so Elon Musk has been sort of a minor celebrity on Shitty Christians. He's a person that we enjoy shitting on. He is a compellingly broken figure. We've referenced his uh, horrific labor conditions in his factories. We've talked about how his tunnel designs are utter and complete nonsense. And so many of the things that he is consistently lauded for as if they were genius are just the most hackneyed, tired bullshit. So yeah, Elon Musk and Grimes had a kid. Zach, how do I pronounce this kid's name? We think it is something to the effect <laughs> <Who's> of... <we? laughs> the entire internet the, is, the internet, has the been joke, sleuthing this. My favorite joke on the internet is that it's like Toby. Uh, but we think it is something to the effect of X-A-I Archangel. Okay. I will point out that neither the letters ai nor the word archangel exists in that name why would they michael language there is no there's no relationship between sign and referent michael yeah well you know elon musk has always been an innovator you know these true geniuses they can't they can't think inside the box of language or pronunciation we got on that uh catholic guy a couple weeks ago for naming his kids like methuselah or whatever Little oh, did man. we know. Elon Musk is a secret priest. Unpack this name for me. Let's dive into the genius. Help me understand. So according to Grimes, the mother, X is the unknown variable. The sort of A-E symbol, which is normally pronounced Ash, is her elven spelling of A-I, love and or artificial intelligence. That's her elven spelling of A-I. Oh, her personal yeah. elvish dialect. How did I not know Wasn't this a thing? Doesn't she, like, do this already? Yeah, Michael. It's like you don't know anything about the Grimes lore. I I really genuinely don't. I have never interacted with that person's music. Yeah. uh, I mean, like, her handle is is more or less a bunch of emojis, symbols, other languages. uh, and, and, And so anyway, the next thing is the actual name is A12 is the precursor to the SR-17, which is, quote, our favorite aircraft. Ew, who has a favorite aircraft? <laughs> Fucking I... nerds. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the deal with this aircraft? Why is that special? Because apparently it has, according to Grimes, no weapons, no defenses, just speed. Great in battle, but nonviolent. White heart. <laughs> this is, I mean, it's, it, I, I hate to say what I'm about to say. This is very on brand for, for Grimes. Like, it actually feels more of a Grimes name. People are... I think taking this more to Elon, but like Grimes is the kind of person that like will have songs like Kill V Mame. You know, like this is just like her whole vibe. It's lame. It's lame to subject your child to your fucking personal brand. 
this this is the sins of the father being visited to the ninth and tenth generation. Like by the time we get to like this kid's child just named Alpha and Omega version two slash remix featuring Lil Uzi Vert. It's it's just not going to be cute anymore. <laughs> hey, that song slaps. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, so briefly before we move on, can we talk just a little <laughs> bit about what a terrible husband Elon Musk is? Yeah, so he's been married a couple times before, and I went back and read an article from his first wife and uh, Marie Claire because she's a yeah. writer. She's a writer. She was his college sweetheart. Like, they met at school. Yeah. They have, like, five kids together. They were married for a long time. It's it's a little bit sad. He's been, since their divorce, kind of, you know, flitting about, for lack of a better term. But so I went back and read it, and it's, it's just, it's kind of sad and icky. Um, yeah, it's really gross. So he talks about, you know, to sort of set the stage, she writes... In the spring, late spring of 2008, my wealthy entrepreneurial husband, Elon Musk, the father of my five young sons, filed for divorce. Six weeks later, he texted me to say he was engaged to a gorgeous British actress in her early 20s who had moved to Los Angeles to be with him. Her name is Tallulah Riley, and she played one of the sisters in 2005's Pride and Prejudice. Two, the, two <laughs> thing, the two things that struck me, she continues, were A, Pride and Prejudice is a really good movie. And B, my life with this man had devolved to a cliche. <laughs> I need to read this lady's books. No, she sounds like a like a pretty good pretty good author. She get they get married. It's kind yeah. You know, so it's, it's, I, I read this as well this morning, but she talks about how when they started dating in college, she was initially attracted to him in part because he was the first person she'd ever met that was supportive of her writing career. Like she was mm-hmm. in the college bookstore with him. Hey, like I want to be on these shelves one day. And he really like responded to that. He was ambitious. He saw that ambition in her. And he initially, at least, he was attracted to it. And he, he was excited to encourage that. And then things take a turn. They get married. He becomes uber successful. I mean, he was always wealthy. He comes from sort of a very wealthy South African family that owns like an emerald mine and things like yeah, that. Yeah, things that are always totally ethical and fine. Emerald mines. In South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he sort of makes his, as much as you ever can when you come from a wealthy family, he sort of makes his way, makes an enormous fortune. And... They, they have a bunch of kids, and she does, by the way, accomplish her, you know, she gets published, but he yeah. stops caring about that. You know, he wants her to sort of take care of the house, and, you know, she, she tells him at one point, I highlight this, years in, she says, I'm your wife, I told him repeatedly, not your employee. If you were my employee, he said just as often, I would fire you. <sighs> yeah, no, not great. She talks about at one point being like at a friend's wedding dancing with him and him being like, I am the alpha in this relationship. I think that was her wedding. I think they were dancing at her own wedding and oh he was like, God. I am the alpha. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's just, Which, it's really, really horrifying. I just, I want to say, Elon, just a little bit of free advice. Uh, if you have to tell someone you're the alpha. <laughs> <laughs> If you feel I mean, the need to establish. That's kind of Elon's whole thing. If he weren't committing so much harm to the people mm-hmm. that work for him, to yeah. uh, the world, like whatever Tesla's strides Tesla has made for like moving electric cars forward, there is at least as much harm that has come from his like terrible sort of co-opting of NASA and just getting mm-hmm. public funds to pursue terrible ideas. The man is a villain. It's frankly embarrassing how much libs love him. Like I, living in Los Angeles, I see an Occupy Mars shirt at least once a week. And it's always this 30-something white dude that you just know wants to have an insufferable conversation about jazz with you. <laughs> Everything Elon Musk does could be better achieved in the public sector. Please continue. The most horrifying detail of that article for me, though, was actually Mm -hmm. just his incessant need to, like, try to neg her into making her hair more blonde. Like that she, is she just was dark so haired and he was just obsessed. I get, he brought it up all the time. Oh, hey, you should go platinum, like blonder, blonder, blonder. Like she became a blonde and it wasn't enough for him. And then like his second wife, by the time they got married, she was blonde. Like this dude just has an obsession. The, no kink shaming, but I am kink shaming Elon Musk. I'm kink shaming. Well, here's the thing. I'm, I, I am, I'm control shaming. Like it's one thing yeah, to have a kink. It's, an, totally, it's another, totally it's another well thing. Said. 
it's another thing to be like you have to do this at all times to pay attention to my needs or just yeah always focus on like critiquing your partner is just it's really upsetting all of which is to say elon musk i hope your kid is way better than you yeah i you know if i have one hope as much as this can be a thing grimes comes into this relationship and this parenting with her own money fame and success uh, up front and i hope that helps protect her some it probably won't but i hope it does yeah it definitely won't because she's already into it like that's the thing like grimes had sort of a reputation as being kind of a leftist kind of a revolutionary Mm -hmm. and then it just to pair that like behavior or or words with elon fucking musk just proves that that was always just an aesthetic because you can't be both you can't think of yourself as a revolutionary and also like be married to a inveterate capitalist yeah fuck elon musk and his whole vibe yeah i hope your kid hates you i mean well that is a good chance of that check out the name uh let's move let's move on let's move forward if we will to a very interesting article that we read this week. Uh, you know, we're, we're in the midst of this pandemic. Stuff is getting really bad. We don't know how, how awful this is going to be, not just for people's lives, but for so many institutions. Zach, tell me, how will we save the churches? <laughs> so we found an article in Baptist News Global called... It's time for innovative partnerships between churches and for-profit businesses. (laughs) You know what's so funny is last episode we were talking about like Baptist News Global and how like, hey, this is pretty above average. And like that still may be on on the whole true. But there is a reason we did not offer a blanket (laughs) endorsement for that institution because this week I – turn on the computer and see this nonsense you know, the only thing we blanketly endorse is grimes baby x versus sever <laughs> also shout out to me for talking about turning on the computer like a 70 year old <laughs> that was that was good <laughs> you were like sitting there shouting out it engage <laughs> engage i'm just i'm just pushing the f key being like why isn't this turning on where is my email how do i get to my crosswords <laughs> Okay, so tell me more about why we need to turn churches into Starbucks. So this article is written by David With, and I just want to say his picture is at the top of it. Oh, I made a note about this too. He's a bow tie guy. He's a bow tie. You, well, and here's the thing. You knew it ahead of time. You knew it ahead of time. <laughs> He's, he lives in Raleigh, and I just want to say, David, we probably know some people in common. It's no secret, he begins, that most churches in the United States have been experiencing declines in membership and financial support for decades. Gee, I wonder why. We, I have been in church meetings where old people yell at young people for not giving enough to the church. And there's two elements of that. Millennials are actually very generous as a generation. Like mm-hmm. We give a much higher percentage of our income, and we give it to a lot more places and causes that we're interested in. Oh, uh, yeah. Two, we have no fucking money. We have You took nothing. all the money. Well, yeah, and they just, nobody will die. Nobody will die. Like, <laughs> well, I was... We're- we're about to solve that problem. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to the radio. Nancy Pelosi was born before World War II. That can't be true because if she if that was true, she might actually hate Nazis. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, churches are falling apart. If there was ever a moment for congregations to entertain new modes of missional practice, that oh, sounds God. fine. But wait. That's, all, that's, that's a word. And financial sustainability. That time is now. The time is now, baby. So he continues, as the COVID-19 pandemic awakens Main Street and corporate businesses and their consumers, the fragility of the American economy, the now not-so-invisible hand of the free market, has revealed all of her cards with a five-card full house of crippling illness, growing scarcity, social panic, outrageous debt, and widespread job loss. So this was kind of a fascinating moment for me uh, for two reasons. One, that is a terrible sentence. The worst sentence. How's that metaphor? That is an invisible hand playing poker. I just, I lost the plot, man. It's too much. It's a a winning hand of bad things. Thought he was making a point about like, yeah, the market is fucking us. Well, he almost starts to go that way. He's almost like, maybe capital is bad. But that's, you dear listener probably know where this is going. It was just a really funny moment of like, acknowledging the real problem before offering the worst solution 
<laughs> so, you know, he talks about capitalism a little bit more. And he says, you know, to be sure, pulpits from across the theological spectrum will resound as critics or champions of the free market capitalism, the oh, capitalist aren't you, system. Aren't you just so special, Mr. Centrist, Mr. Sitting in the Middle? And then, well, and then he, like, drops the hammer. Some will continue to preach American capitalism as gospel, touting the gifts of economic freedom and individual liberty. It's like, well, I wonder where you stand. See, I, I still think, I think that he's trying to take the middle road. He was saying like, oh, we're not here to have that conversation because we're all living in the system, baby. So we all just got to do what we can. Yeah, the reality is that not a single dollar is given to the American church that hasn't passed through the coffers of capitalism in some form or fashion. It's weird it's that they kept the typo because I'm pretty sure it was supposed to say coffins. <laughs> so he talks about how things are falling apart. There's no money, blah, blah, blah. But so he's here to tell you there's a solution, Michael. Oh, thank God. One possible solution, he writes, comes in the form of a historic Christian practice, often under-prioritized by the evangelical right and is shooed by the social gospel-centered left. You know what God said about the lukewarm? You know what Jesus said about lukewarm? He said that's that's how he likes his tea. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is the solution, Michael. For-profit businesses established and led by faith communities. So uh, this is where I'm going to get into a little bit of theology, etc. here in just a second, because he decides to talk about Trappist monks. <laughs> no, because I'm a basic bitch, I yeah. kind of get a little bit excited. You know, uh, I went to, I have known a Trappist monk here or two, here or there in my what, day. What do you mean known? I went to a Catholic grad school and there was a Trappist monk in some of my, a couple of my classes. Oh, this was the Val of Silence guy. Yeah, but he was chatting while we were in school together. So that was very yes, funny. He had a break from his vow of silence. Until the rest of his days, silence. But he will email. Fucking ruthless on Twitter, though. <laughs> so the Trappists, usually pretty chill dudes, leave lives of, like, penury, chastity. You know, they just kind of hang out. So this, this asshole went and hung out with them. He writes, The experience after hanging out with some Trappists was so powerful and inspiring that less than six months later, I launched North Carolina's first for-profit business and congregational ministry venture in partnership with First Baptist Raleigh, a food truck where monthly profits are shared with our poor neighbors in the form of barbecue sandwiches, sides, and ice-cold drinks. <laughs> so, that is not super in keeping with the spirit of Trappist. Uh, what did you do for others when you were most needed? And it's it's like you gave them barbecue and drinks. You profited off them? You like, made what? money and then gave people old sandwiches at the end of the day? Okay, did you get the name of his barbecue restaurant in this? No. Oh, Zach, you missed the most important part. The name of the food truck is, and also with Q. Boo. <laughs> That's apostrophe C-U-E as in the tail end of barbecue in case anyone was not understanding that clearly genius. So he uh, writes a little bit more how each of these these monasteries, a historic Christian monastery where revenue was supplemented by monk-led for-profit business. The goal was to address this question. Might churches employ alternative revenue streams to sustain programs and operations during times of economic or social crisis? There's two things I want to hear. First of all, churches and monasteries are not the same. No. And monks would never claim to be the church or a church. And also, the Trappist monks do not operate as a for-profit. You fuck! Right. Because here's what happens. is He says, Trappist monks have for centuries conducted ethically sound for-profit business. So what he does to bolster this is he says the, the rule of St. Benedict is a historic and time-tested guide for churches to follow when implementing ethically and theologically sound for profit business. So I did some I did a little bit of reading, even though I said I wouldn't do it. I'm sorry. You were not forgiven, but continue. <laughs> I, you know, from my interaction with monks, they would never do anything for profit. But maybe I was wrong. I thought, let me look into the rule of saint benedict because that is the entire thing this douchebag is basing his argument on so i looked into this benedict's concerns were the needs of monks in a community environment namely to establish due order to foster understanding of the relational nature of human beings and to provide a spiritual father to support and strengthen the individual's ascetic effort and spiritual growth that is required for fulfillment of the human vocation so none of that 
seems to vibe with making profit for a church. And it has to do with these communities that are not very ways about the church. But I went deeper. <laughs> I just see the words chapter 33 here. <laughs> and chapter 33 literally forbids the private possession of anything without the leave of the abbot who is, however, bound to supply all necessities. And, pres- and chapter 34 prescribes a just distribution of all things. <laughs> Boy, I wonder what that sounds like. But here's the kill shot. So he says this is like how you should run a for-profit business. Chapter 57 says, enjoins humility on the craftsmen of the monastery. And if their work is for sale, it shall be below rather than above the current trade price. That is not for profit. <laughs> you dumb Baptist hayseed fuck. It literally is going against everything you're saying. It is literally anti-profit. Oh, you stupid I lo- bitch. I love, I love. It's it's the best move. Just quote something <laughs> that you know that no one except us assholes is ever going to bother looking up. He just, he, he quotes something and says it's defense of something it's actually against. It's amazing. Like, what is wrong with you? I just want to bring up one quote that I, I found in this. Yes. Uh, and it's where he's talking about profit. Because, you know, that's mm. this whole thing. Like, it can't, it's, yeah. it's not about, profit's it's not fine. the problem. And he says, profit isn't born of greed, but rather is a gift from one's work to serve and care for the community. Ugh. That is, what the fuck? Yeah, I'd like to quote from from our Bible where it says, labor is entitled to the value of all it creates. <laughs> you can't turn a church into a business. These are diametrically opposed missions. Well, yeah, I've, I've been reading John and... In the second chapter of John, Jesus literally makes a whip and gets people out of the temple who are doing business. He flipped the food truck's condiment sta- tables. There, like, there is no Christian argument, historical or otherwise, for him. Yeah, it just and and I think it also just fails to recognize that like businesses take time and energy to run. If you are investing the amount of time and energy it would take to get a small business up off the ground and profitable so that it can su- like subsidize your ministry work, then guess what? You're not going to have any time for that. A monastery is not the church and a business and, and a business is not a monastery. It is, it is a daisy chain of absolutely broken understanding that leads you to the conclusion that we should turn every church into a fucking Dunkin Donuts. Which by the way, like is already kind of happening. Like, you know, you look you look at mega churches, they've already figured this out. Uh well, you know what Jesus said, runs on Dunkin uh, I think, and even that, like, so my, I, I was making some sort of practical arguments about like, dude, you don't, who has the fucking time to do both of these things, you idiot. But actually, I think <laughs> I'm ignoring the more central moral argument. These things do not have the same purpose. Jesus says, leave behind your fish and follow me. Like he does not say, hey, build out your fishing business, get it up and running smoothly, catch some more <laughs> trout or whatever the fuck, and then when you're making healthy returns for your investors, then use some small subset of that profit base to do good. Like, this man is trying to Bill Gates our entire faith, and I fucking hate it. You mean he's trying to give us all corona through 5G? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck this guy. I mean, it's so funny. I can't tell you how many times from these kinds of Baptist assholes, it was they would talk about like do your research, know your know your sources, and, and like this guy has never read a book, only a blog post. Yeah, I mean, none of these people they just buy the book so they can misquote it. The whole point is to be able to try to twist the aesthetic value that we give the concept of knowledge to whatever shitty end they want. Like they have no interest in actually engaging with history and time and theologians and philosophers. Like they don't give a fuck about any of that. They just want that gravitas applied to their terrible fucking food truck idea. I'm going to swagger Jack Trappist monks so I can sell shitty barbecue sandwiches to homeless (laughs) folks. Fuck you, you basic bitch. The last point I want to make is that this is also just rooted in fear. Like, the church is dying. There's no money. Like, ah, fuck you. If you actually believed in God, you wouldn't, like, be trying to, like, run, like, uh, church a million. And it's it's worried about dollars, not about people. Because yeah. the truth is, a good church is concerned with reaching people with its resources, not getting yeah. resources from its people. 
So, you know, it's uh, it's just it's just embarrassing, hackneyed evangelical shit. Uh, the only thing worse than that article was that bow tie. <laughs> So today we're going to be looking at the Haymarket Massacre, which is an incident that happened in Chicago in 1886 during the time when a lot of different labor organizations were striking for an eight-hour workday. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we lose all of our listeners, but that's okay. Listen, guys, the one of you that's left, I'm here for you. We're friends. Oh, um, so excited. I think it's, it's a foundational moment in uh, socialism, in mm. the American labor movement, and honestly, I think in how our country understands social and labor movements, I kept being struck by just how like current this thing that happened, you know, a hundred and what is it? 50, almost 50 years ago. Michael, I, I've done some reading this week. You will not, you, I, I repeat, you will not get me to do math. <laughs> you will not push me to math. I have 10 fingers, 10 toes. Uh-huh. Maybe. <laughs> I've said too much. <laughs> Um, 133 years, four months, five days, 15 hours, seven minutes, and two seconds ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. No, I didn't put in the actual date of the massacre. So 133 years ago. <laughs> and it, it honestly feels like it could be happening now. Zach, are you ready to go on a journey with me? Uh, We're holding hands and holding hearts. So, yes. Uh, So we are in Chicago. It's 1884. Uh, Post-Civil War, there was a pretty long depression, and sort of towards the end of that, there was a huge explosive growth in industrial, like, production. And so Chicago was a huge, like, industrial center. There were lots of things being made there, and there were tens of— A lot of of Polish people. Well, it was honestly mostly German and Bohemian immigrants that were working at that time. Wow, I make one joke and Michael comes in with the facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by bohemian, I don't mean like your shitty Instagram friend that like that's their like bio. I'm, I'm talking like from Czech the Republic. actual country yeah, of then bohemia, now the Czech Republic. Anyways, <laughs> working conditions at the time. This is sort of the important like stage setting moment. We're about $1.50 a day for 10 to 16 hours of work. The average American worker was working slightly over 60 hours a week on a six day work week. Oof. Yeah. Just to put it in perspective, that's about $40 a day in 2020 dollars. Oh, gosh. Inflation that far apart is sort of hard to judge even when you make that comparison. But yeah, 10 to 16 hours a day for $40. So obviously, labor organizations are getting pretty frustrated about this. And this is sort of the the first blush, the first wave of American socialism and anarchism. Um, And there are a lot of different organizations springing up, and a lot of them have pretty powerful... Uh, communities in Chicago. A, a again, middle-aged Bernie Sanders is there yeah, trying yeah, to get yeah. people to strike. Hey, 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 young young Bernie, thank you. <laughs> and so it all sort of boils up until the Federation of Organized Trades decides, hey, May 1st, 1886 is when the workday becomes eight hours. Mm. And we will strike on that day for that. They say this in 1884. They spend two years building up to this moment and just repeatedly saying, hey, this is when it happens. They don't go to the employers. They're not like trying to get laws changed. They're just like, no, this is what's happening on this date. Wow. That is that is alpha. It is pretty That is alpha, Elon. And (laughs) no, don't you keep keep that motherfucker's name out your mouth when you are talking about these heroes. And so as this date approaches, May 1st, 1886, there is a lot of fear uh, all over the country, but particularly in Chicago, because traditionally mass strikes had not gone well. There was mm-hmm. there was a strike, a railroad strike in 1887 or sorry, 1877 that had led left hundreds of workers dead. And President Whoa. Hayward actually sent federal troops to travel around from city to city to break this railroad strike. And they came in and they Holy killed people. Holy crap. Oh, yeah. And, and they killed people and the Pinkertons killed people and the private militias hired by the corporations killed people. Like, I think one of the things that we need to make really clear is that, like, 
we have always been fighting for and with our lives. The and, class and, war has always been literal. And yeah, it is. It is always been literal war. And hundreds of people died less than a decade before this happens. Wow. And so May 1st, 1886, more than 300,000 workers from 13,000 business acro- businesses across the entire United States walked off the job. Wow. In Chicago alone, 40,000 people went on strike and they did it peacefully. Wow. There were a certain segment of employers and business owners that were so shocked by this mass outpouring of solidarity that something like 13% of the workers that struck immediately got their eight-hour workday. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it was just like immediate, like results day, like moment one. Day one, this happened for a certain percentage of these people. And then they continue through the next day, goes up to 100,000 in Chicago. Again, Whoa. all peaceful. Then we get to May 3rd. Some of the strikers are going in support of a the workers at a steel plant that have been striking for six months. During that mm-hmm. time, they had been regularly beaten by Pinkerton agents and harassed by police. Like this Man, was... The Pinkertons, it's not just Deadwood. They really were the worst. Oh, no. Trust me when I say they'll come up again. Uh, no, they, they never come up. There's never like a happy Pinkerton story. There's never like the Pinkertons came and the town <laughs> yeah, was saved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Pinkertons came and made everything all right. I was, I'm so happy when my daughter married a billionaire Pinkerton brother. <laughs> They're at this McCormick steel plant. Police start beating protesters. Protesters respond by throwing rocks. Unsurprisingly, police unleash fire into this crowd. Oh, no. Unknown number w- wounded, minimum two killed. Wow. Then we get to May 4th. On May 4th, the anarchist organizations, which was kind of interesting for me. I've always, like, heard a lot about the socialist history um, in America. But I wasn't really aware that, like, a lot of these labor unions were hugely run and and staffed and, and joined by anarchists. Like, there was a real powerful anarchist movement that genuinely, like, there was sort of a debate between the socialists that wanted to make things good for everyone and the anarchists that were like, no, we need to dismantle all hierarchy. But they were all working for the same purpose in this moment. I think there's something really powerful. Uh, yeah, you know, that's kind of inspiring. Yeah, that like these are people that had real philosophical differences about how to structure our country, but they all were able to come together to say, this is what we can do for the worker now and fight for that. Uh, so the anarchists put out uh, a call. They're like, hey, we need to have a public meeting. We need to come together to talk about this police brutality. They're killing us in the streets. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they call this meeting for May 4th in Haymarket Square. I'm sure you can sell. This is going to go swimmingly. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, this will be a happy story. I think it's important to set up that, like, this was, like, really small in comparison to everything that had come before. Compared to the 100,000 people that were striking in Chicago the previous day, only about 3,000 people maximum showed up to this actual meeting. Because, one, it was on incredibly short notice. You know, it was called for the next day. And, two, the weather was really shitty. Like, Hmm. which ends up being a pretty significant factor in what happens next. And so there's maximum somewhere between 600 and 3,000 people at this event. The police, of course, are there in force. The actual mayor of Chicago shows up to check it out. There are there are families there with their children. Like this is this is a big public nonviolent protest and meeting. And the mayor himself just left early because he he said he testified. The crowd remained calm and orderly. And the speaker, August Spies, made no suggestion for the use of force or violence towards any person. Okay. Uh, there are a couple people that spoke, and I want to spend a little bit of time. But let's start with Albert Parsons, uh, who was a first socialist, later became an anarchist. He fought for the Confederacy in Texas during the Civil War and then married a freed <laughs> slave and spent the rest of his life working for worker rights and black rights with his wife, Lucy Parsons, who is an advocate and activist in her own right. Um, wow, that's pr- that's a pretty metal background. I'm yeah. sorry, that's awesome. All these like, guys are pretty fucking. Uh, you know what's you, you know what's a, we can cut this or not, but uh, on the losing side of everything, poor guy, <laughs> <laughs> just could not pick a winning side to save his life. Yeah, well, welcome welcome to our podcast too. So, <laughs> Bernie, Bert, what? Um, <laughs> so yeah, Aww. so that, that's one of the guys, and he was one of the more fiery orators, and he spoke for an hour in the crappy weather uh Aww, he's one of us yeah yeah and then the second guy that spoke was samuel fielden 
Now, Samuel okay. Fielden, he was actually a lay pastor. He was Methodist. He had studied theology. He ended up being sort of a circuit preacher in Britain where he was born for a while, emigrated sure. to the United States and worked in various like textile plants and work, became a full-time oh, teamster. He was, like, he was like the guy from before. He was trying to you know bring some profit to the church is what it sounds like. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Zach. Again, <laughs> keep, his, keep that bow tie out your mouth when you discuss these heroes. Uh, Fielden went to work at the age of eight in the cotton mill in in Lancashire guy and he he talked about how that the most like devious form of torture Satan could devise was to take damned souls and make them work as children in a textile plant uh, Mm. and just keep them as children doing that work and he said the only passion that bonded us was the hatred of our conditions wow Um, that's so that's really powerful Fielden Fielden was a lay pastor and at this point pretty much a full-time labor activist and he didn't really want to speak which I actually think is important that like the weather was bad people were already kind of dispersing this thing was winding down but he was convinced to like talk and so he was just Mm going to give like a brief 10-minute talk and he starts doing that meanwhile there are varying reports of this but the one that I found that seemed the most trustworthy was 188 police officers are watching this oh you know, I always, feel, I always feel safe when 188 cops are, <laughs> are watching. standing in a corner glaring at you. Uh, Noted keepers of the peace, police. Yeah, and so the police captain, as he's finishing his speech, marches up to the wagon that he's speaking from and says, y'all need to get the fuck out of here. Like, you need to disperse. Whoa. Um, and it's wild because it's clearly winding down. A lot of people had already left. They, the estimates are, again, very varied. We're talking about things over a century removed. But just hundreds, totally. something in the hundreds of people still gathered. And so it's, it's really strange that mm-hmm. this would be the moment to walk in and sort of big dick it. And uh, Fielden talked about how he said, hey, uh, you know, hey, man, this is a peaceful gathering. Like, yeah. Uh, and, and he later wrote, he was like, I was saying that to alleviate his concerns because he seemed so agitated by what was happening. And then mm-hmm. he repeated his request even more angrily and Fielden hopped down off the wagon and he said, okay, we'll go. And the crowd started to disperse. And that was Good. the end I of wish- the story. Nothing bad happened. We all yep. moved on. And we can all go home. <laughs> As the crowd is dispersing, somebody tosses a bomb at the police officers. Oh, no. One of them is immediately killed. Seven of them are wounded mortally and die over the course of the next week. Whoa. And in response to this, 188 minus seven police officers start firing indiscriminately into the mass of peacefully gathered people. Oh, no. And within five minutes, again. Numbers vary. There isn't even variance because they never released them. No reporting was ever done on the number of people that were killed and wounded. Uh, The police chief himself said they had at least 60 wounded police officers at the end of this. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 60 policemen wounded in the incident. To be clear, despite reporting the next day, there is no evidence to suggest that anyone gathered in that crowd was fighting back in any way. There were two incidents Mm -hmm. of violence that happened. A bomb was thrown by an unknown person. And there was police shooting. So 60 of these police officers shot each other. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And then and then blamed it on the protesters. Like, they were just, you know, one of the policemen later described it as he was dying as, like, just firing blindly. And, you know, there's so many people. We're talking hundreds of people. There's no way to estimate how many civilians were wounded uh, or dead because people right. got the fuck out of Dodge. And they knew if they went and sought treatment, they would be arrested. So they all sought treatment where they can. Uh, Fielden himself was shot in the leg and ended up like walking, like dragging himself to the corner and getting patched up there. At the corner. That's incredible. Yeah. I also, you know, briefly, it just cops haven't changed. You know, you remember in that Florida shooting when they when like some robbers took a UPS truck and cops unleashed like hundreds of bullets at this UPS truck, killing one of the hostages. Yeah. Killing the hostage on a crowded highway there are two people that died and both of them were shot by police and like, i'm sorry like it's kind of hard to like there's a straight line between yeah. police 150 years ago and police now and I, it's a real problem 
it's really hard to undersell how much this changed the narrative on what the labor movement was. Uh, this was the mm. moment that industries and, and newspapers needed to paint them as truly, truly evil. Uh, so despite the fact that no violence came from the people gathered, one, a bomb had been thrown by an unknown party. We'll get to that part. The next thing that happens is this huge, massive anti-union clampdown. Ugh. The New York Times wrote an article the same day called Anarchy's Red Hand. And, he dis- and it described the incident as the bloody fruit of the villainous teachings of anarchists. The Chicago Times described the defendants as arch counselors of riot, pillage, incendiarism, and murder. Other reporters described the gathered protesters as bloody brutes, red ruffians, dynamarchists. I don't even know what that means. Bloody monsters, awesome, cowards, cutthroats, and thieves. Oh, wait, I forgot a couple. Assassins and fiends. The writing was more interesting back in the day is mostly <laughs> what I'm getting from that. It's like, wow, that is that is colorful. Read the New York Times today. Same ideology, but much more yeah, boring. No, I'm sorry, Brett, anything, St- Brett Stevens can't, can't get there. Aspires to dynamarchists. George Frederick Parsons wrote a piece for our personal fan favorite, The Atlantic, in which he identified the fears of middle-class Americans concerning labor radicalism and asserted that the workers had only themselves to blame for their troubles. Oh, yes. Let's blaming the workers. Yep, they were the ones firing the guns. So this became it's like, oh, We've always known they're violent. They want to hurt us. This is still the deadliest moment that the Chicago police have ever had. Um, wow. And, and Which is saying something because they've killed a hell of a lot more than that. Um, right. Yeah. No. Uh, a deadliest moment all at once, for but sure. But this moment, which should have been about police losing their shit mm. and un- just unleashing fire on an unarmed public legal gathering, became the story of how the labor movement and these anarchists and these socialists are evil. Uh, the Oof. There was a massive outpouring of community and business support for the police. Thousands of dollars donated to funds for their medical care. Would you would you say that blue lives matter? <laughs> these blue lives clearly did. The entire labor and immigrant community, particularly the G- Germans and Bohemians that made up such a large percentage of these workers, uh, came under really intense suspicion. Ugh. Police raids were carried out without any attempt to get any sort of, uh, you know, legal warrants. They would just come in. They beat people. They arrested hundreds of people that were only remotely connected, if at all. Uh, mm-hmm. They ransacked meeting halls, places of business, socialist meeting places. This became the moment where they had the incident that could turn the public's perception on who these workers were. And they hit it with everything they had. Oh my gosh! Uh, a newspaper report in Chicago described it as a riot, which is just factually inaccurate for a just peaceful not gathering. Not what the word riot means. Um, and so there's been a lot of speculation, like the men yeah. that were eventually arrested for this, which is what we're going to get to next, firmly believe that it was not one of them that had done this. Really? And yes. And there were. Uh, this was, I guess, a very popular view amidst the worker movements. Now, some attributed it to the police, which, you know, might sound a little crazy. Um, Mm -hmm. Much more interestingly, I think, and we'll get to some of the reasons for this, a lot of the workers believed that it was a Pinkerton agent who was responsible for this because they already had a habit of infiltrating labor groups and violent strike breaking. And I think there is, there is something to be considered here, and we'll get to some of the other reasons a little later on, but if it wasn't a Pinkerton agent or someone allied with the institutions of mm-hmm. power, it fucking should have been because this gave right. them everything that they wanted. This was an incredibly cheap way oh, yeah. to manage to change an entire national conversation on what labor is and and the caricature of the worker going forward was an Eastern European immigrant with a big beard, mm-hmm. a bomb, and a knife. So, eight anarchists and socialists were arrested the next day. Albert Parsons, August Spies, Samuel Fielden, Oscar Nieb, Michael Schwab, George Engel, Adolf Fischer, and Louis Ling. The judge, Joseph Gary, ah, uh, he was not a huge fan. <laughs> What's interesting about this group this of was, people... Uh, 
This was not a judge duty situation. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a kangaroo court situation. So I don't know. Maybe Judge Judy honestly probably would have been Joseph Gary in this situation. Um, like Judge, you Judy take is, her name out your mouth. No, Judge Judy is not a friend. <laughs> Fuck you. I know uh, she's not. Interesting little tidbit about all these guys. None of them had any direct interaction with this bombing. Five of them weren't even present. The three of them that were present were speaking publicly and were clearly not the person that threw it because everyone was fucking looking at them. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. There was no attempt to even made to say that these guys were responsible for the actual bombing. The prosecution ended up arguing that they were participating in a conspiracy because of their riotous and violent language. Mm, and so sort this, of the 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 Rico of tweets, if you will. It 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 absolute it is absolutely the moment where all these motherfuckers were rounded up for their Twitter feeds. Uh oh man, that is gonna be a problem for you and me. <laughs> yeah. No, again if we only had followers, it would be a real <laughs> yeah. issue. It, our our only defense is how how off the radar we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh I misspoke earlier. I said all eight of them had been arrested. Actually, seven of them had been arrested. Albert oh. Parsons, the man that spoke for an hour on that day, had managed to evade capture by police. Metal. Which Badass. is pretty fucking baller. But he showed up in court on his own to stand in solidarity with his comrades on their court day. Oh, my gosh. That. Now, that's a squad. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Led to his death. He was then hung. Oh. Oh no. So like this was this was not a small thing for him to do that. Like he showed up yeah. probably knowing that it was going to cost mm-hmm. him his life, but he was there for his people and he had some shit to say. We'll get to that. So, let's get to jury selection, shall we? Oh, but that never ends well. There's no happy jury selection. <laughs> All union members and anyone who expressed sympathy towards socialism were di- were dismissed. Yeah. In the end, the jury of 12 all had confessed prejudice against the defendants. So they ended up interviewing over a thousand people for this jury. Holy and shit. the defense, you know, dismissed with preju- due to prejudice as many people as they could. But the judge was so sick of the process of trying to select people that he got a bailiff that instead of randomly calling people, which is legally what they were supposed to do, they mm-hmm. anointed a bailiff to choose people. The bailiff then was specifically selecting people that he knew would, would want to like find these people guilty. He selected one person who was a family member of one of the injured cops. Oh, that's all. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, incredible. That's incredible even by what I was expecting. The prosecution argued that since the defendants had not actively discouraged the person who had thrown the bomb, they were therefore equally responsible as conspirators. It's true. If you're standing someplace and a person you don't know does the thing you don't know about and you weren't saying, hey man, don't open up that bag of Cheez-Its that I knew you didn't ha- I didn't know you had and eat some, then you're responsible for said Cheez-Its. <laughs> yes, yeah. Then, then you, in fact, are the Cheez-It. That's just transitive properties. And that's why a Trappist monk makes <laughs> yeah. profit. Exactly. 118 people testified in the trial. Okay. 54 of them were members of the Chicago Police Department. Ah, oh, the Chicago PD. Good guys. Good <laughs> guys. I know those. I know those. I know those guys. They're all good. They're, just, they're good dudes. Uh, looks, you can, if you can't see and you're firing blindly, to criticize that is ableist. simple facts another person who testified was a pinkerton detective who had infiltrated the labor movement and was there to testify about how they had all talked about being violent together oh cool that that seems totally trustworthy right like we we have no no reason to doubt the guy that works for the corporations when when he says shit like that the pinkertons are responsible for like more deaths than like some nation states like it's ludicrous oh yeah the the number of americans they have killed in cold blood for having the audacity to i don't know exist or advocate for themselves like it's probably know, if, more than other countries have killed of america if you were squinting at them you'd think they were cops uh their aim's better <laughs> so up until this point it has been surprisingly challenging to find a lot of like direct quotes from some of these guys Mm -hmm. Um, because again, we're talking about a period of time, a long, long time ago in a galaxy, not that far away. Um, but one of the things that I was able to find was the testimony of these guys at trial. Mm. 
and there's some really powerful stuff there. And we don't normally read like long form quotes in this, but I think it's important just to sort of Michael won't let me. I try. <laughs> yeah, I well... wanted to do it. I wanted this podcast to just be me reading books. But no, Michael. <laughs> Michael decided that we had to. If you hadn't and make content. If you hadn't chosen erotic vampire fiction as your subject of choice, or maybe if you had, <laughs> could have been a different outcome. Albert Parsons is talking and he is saying like, hey, this was not us. And mm-hmm. if you want to talk about people that are advocating for violence, let's talk about the newspaper, shall we? To, to sustain this accusation, I submit to you the following facts. Just exactly four days before the grand strike, for eight hours throughout the United States and one week before the Haymarket tragedy, the New York Times, one of the leading organs of railroad, bank, coal, telegraph, and telephone monopoly, published the following notice. Hand grenades should be thrown among the striking sailors, as by such treatment, they would be learned a valuable lesson, and other strikers would take warning from their fate. Wow, that is real familiar. That is that is a New York Times op-ed. Hey, that spoiler, is New York Times they've op. always sucked. I, I, lo- I, love, I love him describing them as the leading organs of railroad, bank, coal, telegraph, and telephone monopoly. Uh, we need to use that when we describe the New York Times from now on. Oh, that yeah. is their title. For sure. Shout outs. Uh, this is another <laughs> one. I, I believe this is also from the Times. The strike question is, of course, the dominant one, and it is disagreeable in a variety of ways. A very short and easy way to settle it is urged in some quarters, which is to indict for conspiracy every man who strikes and summarily lock him up. This method was un- would undoubtedly strike a wholesome terror into the hearts of the working classes. Another way suggested is to pick out the leaders and make such an example of them as would scare the others into submission. Yeah, you know, I can't think of anything that's more the organ of the powerful than the phrase wholesome terror. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, My God. It is, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week, but it is astoundingly naked in its honesty. It's like, well, you should either lock all of them up, punish the leaders of them so much that it scares the rest of them or just throw hand grenades. Yeah. Just hand grenades into their midst of these civilians. I, uh... <laughs> also is, for it the, is, yeah, it is disgustingly honest. I'll say that the New York mm-hmm. Herald said two hours taken from the 10 hours of labor throughout the United States proposed by these short hour movements would make a difference annually of hundreds of millions in value, both to the capital invested in industries and to existing stock. Ding, 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 ding. Boy. Hmm. It is. that That's crazy. So it seems to me, he says, that it is hand grenades for the strikers and gallows for the socialists are recommended by the organ of monopoly as a terror to both. And then this oh, is him it. bringing... I know, I know. All these guys, fucking great writers. It's absurd. I'm so upset as a person with a shitty podcast. I mean, but it was more than 280 characters, so does it really count? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's going to bring it home here. Socialism is simple justice because wealth is a social, not an individual product. And its appropriation by a few members of society creates a privileged class, a class who monopolizes all benefits of society by enslaving the producing class. Now, Your Honor, this is what makes the monopolists mad at the anarchists. This angers the corporation men. See what they say. The the result is that a verdict must be brought against socialism because, as the district attorney states here, the law and the government and anarchy itself are upon trial. That is the reason. Not for what I did, but it is for what I believe. It is what I say that these men object to. Well, I'm crying now, and I wasn't (laughs) planning to be weeping during a podcast, but you know. (laughs) You're welcome. Damn, that's good. The, The economy of logic to say, oh, you are trying me because my rhetoric was too violent. In the paper of record, they're saying throw hand grenades into strikers, but I'm the one that's going to hang. They're allowed to say that, like, they, they, like, shareholders are entitled to two more hours of every single day of your life, six days a week. Let's move on to Fielden, the pastor, the the, mm-hmm. the lay Methodist minister, minister um, and he, God, it's so good. Okay. It is not generally considered a crime among intellectual people to be a revolutionist, but it may be made a crime if the revolutionist happens to be poor. Oh, shit. <laughs> so too with everything. God damn it. Yes. 
I tell you that a man is of no use to his world, of no use to society or the neighborhood in which he lives, who has no other object in view than making a fortune for himself and his family. And it is because we have recognized this fact, and it is a philosophical fact, a logical fact that no man can get away from, and Mr. Ingham has not got the intelligence to perceive it, that the greatest security <laughs> to human happiness depends on the widespread happiness of those around you. Damn. You Fuck. Have. I'm canceling this podcast because we're not that interesting. No. We're spoken. We are. We're principled. God damn. These men died for this. You have no security for your fortunes. You can have no security for your comforts as long as there is around you a dissatisfied, a despoiled, and suffering community. I assert here as fact that Vanderbilt himself would be a happier man today if he had but 20,000 to his name and every employee were above want and above the danger of want. There would be less irritation, less of the trouble and bother of clashing and conflicting of interests that there is, which must necessarily bother those men considerably and hopefully keep them awake at night. Mm. Fuck, that's good. But Michael, I thought from earlier that profit wasn't bad. Yeah, no, but I mean, clearly profit isn't bad, obviously. I make hella good <laughs> Q sandwiches. So clearly I deserve this. <laughs> uh that is really beautifully said and so true. This is the simple language of socialism. Like this is, mm -hmm. they're not saying complicated things. The, the greatest security of human happiness depends on the widespread happiness of the people around you is just beautiful. And how it says like, hey, this is better for all of us. Like yeah. it's better for you, fucking Vanderbilt. You would be a That's better, right. happier, more well-adjusted person. Like, we, we talk a lot about the sins of the wealthy. Uh, yeah. And I am not here to talk about the poor, poor billionaires. But he is right to say these people are not happy. They are incapable no, of happiness. Tr Trump is the most unhappy man in America. And he is taking us all down with him. Mm -hmm. But it's it's just, damn it, he is just summarizing the 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 ideology of this podcast so neatly. Above want and above the danger of want. It's, just, it's mm. beautifully stated. <laughs> so, uh, as as you may have suspected, all of these men were convicted. Yeah. Uh, Shock, the police chief who was a lead, the lead investigator as well, was dismissed from the police force for allegedly having fabricated evidence. <laughs> wow. But wouldn't you know it, he was reinstated a few years later, and in the meantime, he wrote a best-selling 1889 depiction of the events, which, you know, was very fair to all of the people protesting. <sighs> so he God. got famous and then reinstated. All eight of them were convicted. Three of them had their sentences commuted by the governor, including Fielden, the pastor. Uh, but four of them, well, five of them were sentenced to death. The day before Oof. their execution... Louis Ling blew his face face off with a smuggled in blasting cap that he evidently put in his mouth like a cigar. Oh, gosh. That's uh, quite the statement. The next day, Engel, Fisher, Parsons, and Spies were taken to the gallows in white robes and hood. Yeah, they sang the Marseilles. Yeah. Uh, the anthem of the International Revolutionary Movement at the time. Family members were gathered and watched. Uh, Lucy Parsons, the freed slave wife, was uh, arrested so that she could be searched for bombs. Oh, for Pete's sake. In the moments before they were hanged, spies shouted, the time will come when our silence will be more powerful than the words you strangle today. Mm. Engel and Fisher called out hurrah for anarchism. Parsons then requested to speak, but was cut off by the opening of the gallows door. According yeah. to a labor studies professor, William Adelman, he said, no single event has influenced the history of labor in the United States and even the world more than the Chicago Haymarket Affair. It began with a rally on May 4th, 1886, but the consequences are still present today. Although the mm. rally is concluded in our American history textbooks, very few present the event accurately or point out its significance. So I think why it was important to me and to us to like take some time to really delve in because i think yeah my takeaway having spent this time was well this is just 2020 we are still in haymarket square and we say that in a week when we are reopening the economy 
prematurely. Yep. We say that the week that you know there are leaked White House documents saying that we are going to be looking at 3,000 deaths a day in June. Um, That's right. A 9-11 every 24 hours. Yeah, we are, we are looking at, <laughs> in many ways, uh, the direct continuation of these problems, whether that's yeah. our newspapers lying to us and telling us that we're the villains. You know, how much did we deal with that with the Bernie campaign? Oh, my um, gosh. Whether that's our uh, corporate overlords being willing to enact violence upon us in order to get what they want. I mean, there were states this week that set up websites so that businesses that were reopening could rat out their employees because if the business is reopened, there's currently no provision in any unemployment for staying home because you're scared for your life. So if the business is open, you don't get unemployment anymore. So they set up websites so businesses could rat out their people and have them taken off unemployment yeah. mitch mcconnell trying to pass rules that you can't sue your company yeah, if you indemnify die because you're back corpor- corporations for the and he inevitable- said that was his red line that was his red line for the <laughs> oh, there's no. any more stimulus i hadn't heard that oh my god yeah this was new that like if the litig- the litigation stuff was his like the thing he was going to be fighting for like so corporations aren't just people they're the only people yeah we are we are living in a space where once again they are saying hey work or die Yep. Your choice. So here we are. We're back in Haymarket. We're gathering, and they're telling us that shut up and go to work. How do we combat a system that is telling us how clearly they want to kill us? Because these men gathered, struck, didn't incite this violence, and then mm-hmm. died for their cause. And that is, a, right. that is a shitty fucking deal, let me tell you. Like, I, I hope that is not our future. Um, but the truth is that the entire American labor movement, the same movement that gave us the eight-hour workday, as we saw, these men and many more, many more men and women died for. Families were burned in their homes for our Saturdays. They struck and That's said, right. we're staying home on Saturdays. And they said, cool, we're burning your house down with you in it. The things that we fight for in this country always encounter not just, uh, you know, your shitty Thomas Friedman article lecturing, lecturing you on how you don't own enough property. Um, but real, direct, powerful violence. Um, that's right. And that's the situation that these men found themselves in as they were unjustly arrested and hung for something they had no part in. And that is the situation that we find ourselves now in. You know, we when we talk about the past, we talk about, you know, sort of injustices in the past. We try to, they are often created, particularly in the lens of fiction, which is something I think about a lot, movies, fiction as a thing we have moved past. I think the thing that most struck me about going through this affair, about hearing hearing about it, learning about it in more detail, was that nothing has changed, and hopefully we can make the world better in a way that these people wanted it to be. Yes, we find ourselves in the same fight. We are in the same fight today that we found ourselves in back then, but also things did change. Like the eight-hour workday did become a thing, and it has been systemically sort of chipped at from a lot of different angles in the time since then. And there are a lot of people that either don't have the benefit of that, and I don't want to ignore that, but that still became the national standard. Like, they got what they fucking fought for. Like, we can do this. Like like we said, it took one day of a general strike for a certain percentage of those businesses to change because they didn't want to fucking deal with it. Like, That's right. Good things happen because these people stood up for it. Unions work. Strikes work. They know that. That's why they freak out. That is a good place to end on, I think. Solidarity is real, and it is powerful. Solidarity forever, comrades. Normally, we would we end with sort of you know prayers, prayers, praises, prayer requests. But I kind of want to you know give a little shout out to my mom. Oh. You know, yesterday was Mother's Day uh, when this will be coming out. And I just want to say, I, I, you know, I'm grateful for my mom, all the work. Speaking of being a work, my mom's been a worker her entire life. And she still works for the state uh, and grinds out every single day and works hard and gives it her all. And I'm grateful for everything she has done for me and my family. She, you know, has helped take care of us and still helps, takes, helps take care of us. Uh, even if she herself is not as into union movements as I am. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that's a great one. Uh, I'm going to shout out my dad because, you know, I'm mixing it up. 
No, I'm kidding. My dad's great. But uh, uh, love you, Mom. Thank you so much. You're the best. Oh, yeah. I love you, Mom. Any good part of me is because of you, including the socialism. Haha, ha, deal with it. Oh, yeah. No, I've told... I, I have alluded to this before, but my parents are why I'm a socialist, and it would drive them crazy. <laughs> don't teach people to think for themselves. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, If you yeah. don't want that to happen. With that, I'd just like to thank everybody for listening. Yeah, really. For thank reaching you so out. much. Uh, we've had a few people reach out this week, and it has been really great. Uh, it's great to hear from y'all, and uh, we, I've got a couple emails to get back to that I'm really excited about. Uh, my name is Michael Tabor. You can find me at Michael Tabor on Twitter. I'm Zachary Allard. You can find me at Zachary underscore Allard. And you can find all of our socialist shenanigans at at shitty underscore pod or www.shittychristians.com. Thank you guys again. This has been Shitty Christians. From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell of how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner and I'm a miner's son and I'll stick with the union till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you Workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a lousy scab or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Don't scab for the bosses. Don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on? 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 Oh, man. All right, let's move Why? on. Okay, no, we, I can't move on yet. I have one more thought. Why is it that all of these, every single one of these dudes, it's a uniform? The bow tie is always two colors. It's either bright, obnoxious, Easter yellow, or it's polka dots. And the blazer is always blue. Why? Why? Why can none of these men innovate in their sartorial choices? It's, it's an entire generation of Andy Bernards that are the thought leaders of our faith. Jesus Christ. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. no. Yeah. I'm ending I'm talking, I'm talking late, late season Andy Bernard when he really went off the rails. Oh, like when he went on that like boat trip and then broke up with Aaron? Ugh, what yeah. a douche. Who breaks up with Aaron? She's a Aaron, delight. Aaron's great. <laughs>